again, friends, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Monolith Seeker. Um, my name is Steve Osborne. I'm hosting this show, and today I'm bringing you another solo episode that will be just me talking. <laughs> Uh, really, with this episode and any other subsequent solo episode, I'm going to be trying to tackle ideas that have been very instrumental in the focus of this show, which is shattering my old paradigm and helping me expand and view things in a new light and put pieces together in a way that make more sense and that are more flexible and that allow for more growth. And one of the ideas that has been so instrumental in this uh, is the idea of reincarnation. Reincarnation has been something that has made its way into my life through multiple sources, through different media, through comic books I like, through uh, you know the books I'm reading, all the teachers that I talked about in the first episode and in my conversation with Roxanne, all of that. There has been so many instances where I hear people talk about reincarnation in a way that really resonates with me, that really vibrates in my body in a way that makes sense to me, and um, really I just wanted to know what it was all about. I just wanted to dig into it as deeply as I could, so I just started grabbing up books. And uh, the first book I ran across was this book called Reincarnation, A New Horizon in Science, Religion, and Society by Sylvia Cranston and Carrie Williams. And all the books I talk about, I'm going to put in the links to the show at the bottom. But um, anyways, this book really cracked my head open in so many different ways. It was the perfect first find. I can't recommend it enough for anybody who is curious about this research and these ideas. As much as I will be talking about it in this episode and any other episode I talk about involving reincarnation, there's so much in this book that I won't be able to even get to, so still feel free to go out and grab it because there's a lot to learn from it. Um, so the first thing that really struck me about the idea of reincarnation and the teaching of it is just how vast and how far expanding it is culturally. How many different cultures, like literally every world religion has a branch or its main pillar that focuses on the idea of reincarnation. Like most people think about Hinduism or Buddhism when they think about reincarnation. But uh, in the Islamic tradition, there are the Druzes and the Sufis that all believe in reincarnation as well. Uh, in Judaism, it's the Kabbalah branch, the more mystical branch, and even Hasidic Jews believe in reincarnation. And the one that blew me away the most was Christianity. Christianity has the Gnostic tradition that embraces reincarnation, and also just as its original tenet, like it believe it, like Jesus taught reincarnation originally, and that's something that we have historical evidence of. We know when it was snuffed out in the Christian faith. It was right around the time of Constantine. He was the first emperor to convert to Christianity. So up until that time, between Jesus's death and uh, if you believe that Jesus was a real person, but, you know, the teachings of Jesus. Since the beginning of the teachings of Jesus, of Christianity, and then up until Constantine came to power and converted to Christianity, reincarnation was thick in the theology, in the discussions of Christianity. Uh, the whole religion would be unrecognizable to us now as to what it's become. And that is 
like specifically because of Constantine and other emperors who followed that wanted to use this religion to really control and gain more power and expand their reach into people's personal and spiritual lives. And reincarnation was one of the first things that had to go because if you believe that when you die, no matter what life you lived, you get to come back and try again and experience again and learn from a different angle and keep moving and keep growing and having this spiritual evolution through multiple bodies, multiple incarnations, whatever they might be, uh, then you're way less inclined to listen to what the church or what the king or whoever else, the priests, what, whatever they tell you to do. You're not really going to listen to them. You won't really feel the need to follow them. So by outlawing the teaching of reincarnation, which he did, uh, it really put a damper on all that. It made it so that anybody who wanted to call themselves a Christian would have to subjugate themselves to the will of the church, to the will of the emperor, who, you know, they started saying was placed there by God and needed to be listened to because he was, you know, the head of the faith. And uh, really, that just started the whole spiraling out of control that uh, we're dealing with now still in our culture now. Even people who are atheists and roundly reject the entire idea of Christianity in the West are steeped in those ideas. There's still that morality that has to be tangled with. It's something that, you know, has seeped its way through our culture so deeply that we're blind to it in so many different ways. But anyways, digressing from that, it really, it really kind of made my brain explode to find out all of this stuff about reincarnation in Christianity, because when I was being raised Christian, I had been taught in my school and in my church that the idea of reincarnation was satanic, and anybody who was presenting that idea to me was just trying to seduce me into some evil religion or, you know, steal me away from the good graces of God and cast me into hellfire forever. That's the light that they painted this whole idea in. And to find out that it was part of the beginning fabric of this religion that was telling me this was really wild to me. But not only that, and not only every other major world religion that is established today, but also many tribal beliefs, many native peoples in every continent on the planet that is habitable, uh, has a tradition of reincarnation taught in their villages, in their, in, in their history. It is something that, you know, some tribes believe it is a hereditary thing where you will uh, be passed down in your own family line or somewhere else in your tribe. But, you know, there's been instances of it happening where, you know, two tribes are feuding, somebody will die, and then several years will be reborn in the opposite tribe that they were feuding with and will remember, oh, I was, you know, when they're old enough to, I was your enemy before and now you're my father. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's really wild stuff that tends to happen in these things. And, uh, you know, the, the reason, one of the reasons that it seems to make at least the most sense to me that it is so widespread is because there is evidence of it. And one of the biggest indicators, one of the biggest pieces of evidence in that is the idea of children who remember past lives. That is one of the big areas of research that is being done on this topic and something that shows really insane results when you dig into it. 
this book presented a lot of cases, and uh, I also have a couple other books that I will go over that talk about those cases specifically. But there are so many cases like what I just described a second ago of somebody, you know, being born with the memories of somebody else and being able to point to exactly who they were, recognize their family, recognize their friends, where they lived. Uh, They have the same mannerisms. All these different things play out and come through in these kids who were three, four years old. Uh, Sometimes their first words will be, a name of somebody that they knew or the city that they grew up in in their previous life, you know? It's really wild stuff, and uh, yeah, I'm just excited to dive into it here. So I guess one of the first cases that I would like to discuss with you of that uh, is of a person named Dorothy Eadie. Now, Dorothy Eadie was born in England. Uh, When she was a little girl, she fell down the stairs while she was playing, hit her head, And, uh, you know, her parents called the doctor. When he came over, he pronounced her dead. And while he was going to get the death certificate, while the family was grieving in the living room, uh, they came back and found her playing on her bed. She was alive and well and totally fine. But shortly after that, she started crying and saying she wanted to go home. She missed home. And they couldn't figure out what was going on with her because they were in her home, that this was her home. Uh, so, you know, she keeps going on and on about it, how she came from this place where there was a big temple and there were gardens all over the place and it was so beautiful and she missed the people that she grew up with and, uh, you know, even, even the people that she didn't like she would describe, but she would miss them all. She wanted to see them all. And, uh, you know, the parents really didn't know what to make of this. Uh, this temple with the garden would keep coming back to her over and over again in dreams And then one day when she was looking through a book with her father of uh, archaeology digs of different places all over the world where things were being dug up, they found the temple of Abydos in Egypt and it was in ruins. There was a big picture of it and she saw it and was like, this is what I'm talking about. This is my home, but I don't understand why it's in ruins. I don't get why it's so dilapidated and like it was just so thriving Last night in my dream, I don't understand. Uh, So eventually, she starts ditching school and just hanging out in uh, the Egyptology room at the local museum. She's just fascinated with this stuff. She's so fixated on it. She grows up, uh, finishes college. She majors in Egyptology, archaeology, and she moves to Egypt and never leaves. She spends her entire life in Egypt. Uh, She said she never wanted to leave. This was her home, and she knew it in her bones that this was her home and that she'd been here before, and she missed it so greatly, even though it was completely different than the way she remembered it. So as she is going through her archaeology career, eventually she gets the opportunity to work on the temple Abydos that she remembered. And she said as soon as she arrived in the area, she saw the mountain, she knew she was home. She didn't even have to see the temple yet. She saw the mountain in the distance, and she's like, I'm home, I'm coming home, and was very emotional. Um, while she was there working on the temple, uh, people would ask her questions or, or, you know, tell her, ask her to go somewhere. And she would just go straight into the pitch black temple, no lights anywhere inside, and just maneuver her way through and find exactly the place that they were talking about. And she just, like, you know, run ahead of them. And she was there. She knew the place like the back of her hand. And, you know, when it came time for them to start excavating the area around the temple, 
they knew that there would probably be a garden in the area because that had been the pattern of the other temples in the area, but they didn't know where it would be. And she was able to point out exactly the layout. She was able to point to where the trees would be, where the canals would be, where the different, you know, layout of the the plants and, and vegetation. And when they dug it all up, she was absolutely correct. The canals were exactly where she said they were going to be. The roots were exactly where they said the trees would be. Like, everything matched to a T. And, like, throughout her career as an Egyptologist, she was able to decipher hieroglyphics and do things that other people on her teams had no way of doing. Like, she was just the go-to person for so many things. She eventually throughout her life, would start having more and more vivid dreams about Egypt. And she remembered living there in the time of Seti, the the pharaoh Seti, and then going into the reign of Ramses II. And she had a very big affinity for uh, Seti, so she named her son Seti. She married an Egyptian man. They had a kid, uh, and she named it Seti. And, uh, you know... After two years, the man left her because he was really not into monuments. He was not into ancient history. He wanted to focus on current life. So, you know, they just didn't get along very well after a while and they split up. Um, But she changed her name after that to Om Seti, which in ancient Egypt was a very common way, a very like, you know, uh, kind of peasant way of saying I'm the mother of Seti. And she sold herself so well as this person who had been there and had all these vivid memories. She was able to help them put together so many different things that uh, even after she retired, archaeologists from all over the world that would come to Egypt would come and find her whenever they would get stuck on something. And she would usually be able to point them in the right direction or help them work it out like what what the thing that they found was used for or, you know, why something was not where they expected it to be. She helped with so many different things and is considered one of the patron saints of Egyptology. Um, This was a very rare case because usually around the age of between 5 and 12, uh, specifically usually around the age of 8 or 10, memories of past lives start to fade. And uh, nobody really knows exactly why that is, but it's usually around that time that children seem to decide that they don't really want to focus on their past life anymore. They want to focus on this life. They realize, like, you know, whether they end up being convinced that that old life was real or not uh, or fake, you know, whatever. There, Sometimes what happens is parents will hear these kids talking about these things and tell them they're just making it all up and need to focus on real life. Whether or not that happens, uh, at some point the kids realize I'm not getting anywhere in this life by talking about that life. So I need to focus on here and now and be the person that I came back to be. Uh, another kind of strange case in that regard of someone who tried to let go of the past but really couldn't uh, is a woman who in this book is referred to as Mrs. Smith. Um, Mrs. Smith was someone who was plagued with night terrors from the time she was a little girl. And when she was a little girl, uh, between the ages of four and about 10, she would wake up and write down these vivid nightmares that she was having. Um, They started out of being her being burned at the stake. And the descriptions she gives are so vivid and so disturbing, really, (laughs) that uh, 
you know, for coming from a little girl, this had to be the worst nightmare you could ever imagine. Uh, she remembered these things very vividly. She described things that are not commonly known about burning alive, burning at the stake specifically. Um, yeah, she she really goes into detail on that. And then as she grows up a little bit, you know, as these dreams start to progress, she starts to remember a little bit before and a little bit before that and a little bit before that. And until she's kind of got this picture together of what happened to her. And uh, this story is coming out of England again. This woman was English, but she was remembering the life of a child in Belarus, France, in, during the Inquisition. So uh, she started describing in these notes and in these details, uh, she, would, she would write out songs that they would sing at ceremonies. And she would describe these ceremonies and the people who performed them. Um, she would describe her village in the, that she was having, you know, the images of in these dreams. Then she described, uh, you know, being captured and rounded up and kept in this church's crypt, a very specific church's crypt, and then, you know, being burned at the stake eventually. And, you know, as she's growing up, she can't shake these dreams. They keep coming and they keep coming and they won't go away. So she eventually has to go see a psychiatrist about this. And she talks to the psychiatrist about it and he's very intrigued and he wants to see the notes that she wrote when she was a little girl. So she digs through and finds them and brings them to him and he's reading through them. And as he's going through these, he was thinking, you know, this sounds very familiar. This sounds like something that might've happened during the Inquisition. So without telling uh, this person, why he contacted a uh, a professor at the University of Belarus and started asking him questions about the Inquisition and telling him different things that he had speculated. He didn't tell him that they came from these writings of a little girl uh, in her nightmares, but he started asking questions like, "Is this something that happened? Is that something that would happen?" And you know, they they found so many things that matched up perfectly. She was perfectly describing the ceremonies of the Cathars. And the Cathars were a sect of, I believe, Christianity, but they were very mystic and had a lot of pagan roots. Uh, so they were taken out very early on in the Inquisition. They were attacked pretty pretty straight away. Um, but yeah, so he she's describing in these notes the different ceremonies that are being done. And she talks about there being a man in a dark blue robe. And at first the man was like, no, I'm pretty sure Cathars only wore black robes in their uh, processions, in their different ceremonies. And then he did a little bit of digging and was like, no, actually, they wore dark blue robes and dark green robes. Uh, so, yeah, this sounds right. And then, you know, he would send this guy the songs that this girl had written down, and they would word for word match exactly songs that they had in their archives buried deep in these libraries uh, of the old Cathar traditions, what they had been able to salvage. And she was singing this in medieval French. She was speaking medieval French in these notes, but she didn't speak medieval French. She didn't speak regular French. So uh, they were, you know, really blown away by this. It didn't make any sense. So, you know, the more they dug, the more they found. Like, you know, she claimed to have been in this specific crypt in this specific church. And they said at first, no, we don't think anybody was ever kept there. That's not something that makes sense. They had areas specifically set up to hold people who were going to be burned in the Inquisition. And uh, the more digging they did, because the clerks during the Inquisition took meticulous notes 
they were able to find one time where a family had been, uh, you know, picked up. Well, several people had been picked up and there was an overflow situation. So people had to be brought into that church and a small group of people was even brought into this crypt to be held and, and await execution. So all of these things started matching up. And then eventually this woman kept having these dreams. She eventually got a name. She got a name in a family. And through hours of digging through Inquisition notes, they were able to find out that these people that were held in that crypt was this family that she remembered. And this was all stuff that was out of her, her reach as someone who wasn't you know, ingratiated into the academic scene in Belarus where all these records were held. So this is stuff that just kind of kept piling up as evidence that this woman was remembering something that had happened before, happened to somebody else before her lifetime, but the memories were in her head and she felt that these things happened to her. So again, this is another case of, you know, potential reincarnation here. So the reason I brought those two up before I go into anything else is because those two stories that I just told you were primarily researched and conducted by uh, people who I don't know anything else about. Those are the only two stories that I know of them. Uh, Those two stories are pretty famous. They have their own books about them. But um, as far as I know, nobody else involved in that research has been involved in any other children who remember past lives research. The next person I'm going to bring onto the scene, however, though, is someone who is considered the godfather of this research because he has done so much in this field. Uh, The guy's name is Dr. Ian Stevenson. He is a medical doctor who was originally from Canada. Now, growing up in Canada, Ian Stevenson was exposed to the teachings of the Theosophical Society in his house. Um, Not super involved, but his family were interested in them a little bit. And if you're not familiar with the Theosophical Society, um, it's a society started, I believe, by Helena Blavatsky uh, with a lot of her spiritual writings and teachings. Uh, there's several other people who have contributed to it over the years and have taken it, you know, taken the reins and steered it in different directions. It's kind of expanded into a lot of areas. Um, people try to rag on it a lot because it is kind of the thing that opened the door for the New Age movement to happen. It was kind of, you know, they're very tightly associated. Um, I don't see anything wrong with either of those movements as long as they're not done for profit and, you know, the gentrification of spaces and, uh, you know, all of that good stuff. As long as they're done earnestly and with a reverence for the original uh, people who brought those teachings to the table, I don't see anything wrong with examining and ingratiating yourself to as much spiritual teaching and faith as is available to you. But now that I'm off of that soapbox, that is something that Ian Stevenson was loosely uh, associated with in his home growing up. His family talked about these things and a lot of the teachings of all the different religions that you know the Theosophical Society and the New Age movement really talk about involve reincarnation. So it's something that was in the back of his mind growing up all the time. He grew up to become a doctor. Uh, You know, he moved all over the United States, practicing different places, went to Arizona for a while. And I believe it was there that he decided that he wasn't happy just being a physician anymore. He wanted to dig into something that he was passionate about. And he had over the years become passionate about uh, the paranormal. 
And specifically, he had always heard whisperings and, you know, different folklore about people remembering past lives, and he wanted to dig into that. He wanted to see what scientific research he could bring to the table in that discussion, and that's exactly what he did. Um, He basically set out to travel the world and anywhere that he could find cases that would talk to him of, you know, children who remembered past lives, and it was usually children because that is where the memories typically start and where they usually stay. They don't, people don't usually carry these memories at least as vividly into their lives beyond childhood. Um, So yeah, very quickly I'm gonna go over some uh, frequently recurring characteristics that uh, Ian Stevenson noticed in these cases uh, that he studied. And I I should say that at the time that this book, The Reincarnation, uh, you know, the Sylvia Cranston, Carrie Williams book that I'm reading out of, uh, at the time this book was published in 1984, Ian Stevenson had, I believe, 2,500 or more cases that he had studied to either be plausible or confirmed in some way, shape, or form by outside facts. And after this book was published, uh, it would go into the 3,000s that, that he himself had personally been involved in in some way and was able to confirm or pronounce at least plausible. Uh, yeah, so back to the frequently recurring characteristics. The first one that he noticed uh, was common in all of these cases was that the age, the age that the memories of the past life began to appear and that's between the ages of two and four normally. Around the time kids start talking, um, sometimes it'll just come out immediately. It'll be their first words, like I said earlier. Other times it'll be as they're learning to put sentences together and come up with, you know, regular ideas, they'll eventually turn to their parent and say, you know, do you remember my old mom? Do you remember my old family? Or, you know, they'll talk about a thing that they did when they were in their past life as an adult. They'll mention different things that don't make any sense to their parents. The other common factor, as I also mentioned earlier, are the age when memories start to fade, which is, yeah, like I said, anytime between the ages of five and 10, uh, usually, or five and 12, usually between eight and 10 is like when it really starts to go. And a lot of that has to do with, as I said earlier, children decide this is the life I want to be in right now here and not focus on this old one. Something else they notice in a lot of these cases are the characteristics or behavior of the uh, children who remember these past lives. They will have weird quirks or habits that just seem to pop up out of nowhere. Very adult habits sometimes, like swearing or drinking or smoking cigarettes. You know, these like five-year-old kids will just come up and light up and smoke like they know exactly what they're doing. Or, you know, they'll swear at their friends or they'll, you know, say things that don't really line up with their own, you know, personal childhood experience. Uh, A lot of times these kids will also talk about the strangeness of being in a new body, especially if they're coming out of an old body. They'll talk about how rejuvenated they feel or how, you know, good it feels to be in, you know, something so alive. Oftentimes they'll comment on how small they feel and how weird it is to be piloting some little, little body when they're used to being a full grown person. Um, let's see, something else that happens frequently is that these kids, the the things that they remember most vividly are usually either very dramatic things that happen or very traumatic things that happen. Um, you know, they can be big moments of realization for them, you know, like 
uh, meeting somebody for the first time or some, you know, dog or family member or friend that they're super attached to. Other things will come up will be traumatic experiences like if there are any um, injuries, any major injuries or the way that they died, if they died in a very uh, violent way, then they will remember that death very vividly normally. And tying into that, a lot of those kids will have phobias for the objects or any circumstances involved in their death in the previous life. So, you know, uh, there's a case in here of a woman who remembered being uh, a Japanese soldier and dying while cooking out uh, and an air raid happened and shot him down and killed him. Uh, Anytime a car, or I'm sorry, anytime a plane would fly overhead, this girl would just be inconsolable. She would freak out, lose her mind, uh, and it took so long for her to get over that. People are very, you know, triggered by the memories of their past lives, especially when it was something traumatic that happened to them from the past. Um, Something else that they point out to in a lot of these things, when kids are brought around places or people that they remember from their past lives, they will often comment on the things that have changed about them. So, you know, they'll go to a block that they used to live on in a previous life and comment on how all the houses are completely new and they demolished something that was sitting over here. Uh, You know, this park didn't used to be here. This was all woods, whatever. They'll be able to accurately describe and paint a picture of what someone or some place looked like prior to them even being alive. You know, a five-year-old kid will talk about something that changed 20 years ago and know exactly what it looked like before that. Um, So one of my favorite parts of this whole thing are uh, the announcing dreams that several mothers will have prior to the birth of a child who will claim to have memories of a past life. Um, That same case that I mentioned earlier of the girl who remembered the life of a Japanese soldier uh, she, her mother had a dream prior to becoming pregnant with her that a short, chubby Japanese man with no shirt on uh, came up to her in a dream and said, hey, I'm going to come stay with you for a while. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come live with you. And the mother had no idea what to make of this and was kind of freaked out by it and honestly didn't really remember it again until the kids started bringing up that I used to be Japanese. I miss Japan. I want to see my wife and kids. You know, like I miss I don't want to eat all this spicy food you're giving me. I want sushi. I want I live by the ocean. I want seafood. What are you doing to me? You know, all these very peculiar things. But she didn't remember that dream until later. And those dreams happen often in these cases. It's not, it's not something that happens in every case by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it's something that is pretty fairly reoccurring. Another one of my favorite aspects of this research are the birthmarks and deformities that will sometimes occur uh, to a child in birth that uh, correspond with a previous life that they remember. And, you know, sometimes that actually leaves... Uh, a very convincing piece of evidence for someone to match it up with. Uh, there's a case that's going around on the internet right now that is pretty famous now of a little girl who remembers working in an incense factory. And as a tiny little girl, as like a three or four year old girl, she would describe exactly how to make each different fragrance of incense. And her family that she was in had no knowledge of this. She had no way of knowing it, but she was able to describe these things exactly. She was able to take her family to the old house to meet her old family. She knew the name of the company she worked for and owned. 
like she knew all of this stuff. And she also remembered getting run over by a truck and dying. And she had really crazy birthmarks that looked like scarring from something running over her torso. And when they compared the birthmarks on her body to the marks left on the dead body of the person that she was saying she was, they were almost identical. And stuff like this happens all the time. There's another case of uh, a man who was murdered. He was shot in the head with a shotgun. And, uh, you know, a few years later in a village, there was a kid that was born missing an ear and looking like he had scars on his face. And when this man was killed, he was shot in the head, his ear was blown off, and pellets from the buckshot went into his face. And the markings on this man's face were identical to the birthmarks on this kid's face. And, you know, this case is really wild, too, because this kid remembers so much stuff. He got really involved in the family. Uh, he, you know, immediately went and started, uh, you know, questioning his ex-wife in a village not too far away when he was three years old. This kid remembers all this stuff and is shaming this woman that he remembers being married to for moving on so quickly after his death, even though it had been several years. And getting really mad that he wasn't involved in his uh, you know, son's weddings and all these things. And uh, it's a really peculiar case. But again, after a while, that kid uh, got to a certain age where he was like, you know, this isn't serving me anymore. I need to let these people go and let them live their lives. I need to start over and live this life. Uh, his birthmark started to fade. He eventually got some kind of uh, prosthetic ear so that he felt like he looked a little more normal. And, you know, as his self-esteem came up, he just completely let go of that old life. But he knew so much about it. It was really crazy and convincing. And even the family that he was, you know, claiming was his old family were also very convinced. Uh, so, yeah, having talked about those things, I guess I will dig into some of the specific cases that stand out to me that Ian Stevenson himself got to discuss. Um, let's see here. The first one that I wanted to talk about, and actually maybe his most um, outstanding case, is uh, a case that happened in Lebanon. So in Lebanon, Ian Stevenson was there because he was investigating a different case. He met some guy in Brazil that told him about a cousin or whatever that, you know, remembered past lives. So a couple years later, he gets up enough money to go over there and check it out. And when he gets there, nobody's around. Nobody that he's supposed to meet is there. So he just starts asking around and somebody finds out why he's there and tells them, actually, there's a kid right now in this same village that remembers being born in another village that he's never been to, that his family's never been to. So, like, you can go research that if you want. And Ian Stevenson jumped on this because there's, out of all of the cases that he's done, most of these people only contact him after they have done some independent research of their own and made some connections of their own. They'll talk to him, like, while, like, after they have already met the family of you know, their child's previous life and put pieces together. And then Ian Stevenson will come in and very extensively interview these people. And, you know, the, the family of the past life, the family of the current life, the child, anybody involved in this in any way, shape or form, he will meticulously interview over and over again. He stays in touch with these people for a long time. Sometimes the interviews are so dry and ridiculous that the kids hate him and they don't want to talk to him, but their parents are like, no, come on. Like, He's doing some really good research. You should do this. Uh, uh, yeah. So 
basically, this was something that he really wanted to get involved in because the family hadn't taken any steps to confirm this child's story yet. And it was also in a situation where the village that they, the, the child was remembering was only like 25 miles away. So that he was very easily able to facilitate this family making the trip and doing the research themselves. Um, something else that makes this case so strong is that this kid was one of those kids that I talked about earlier that his first two words were names of people from his past life. His first words were uh, Jamile and Mahmud, and uh, nobody in his family was named that. He hadn't been exposed to those names, so uh, yeah, they were. They took note of it immediately. And as this kid grew up, he started talking about different things, you know, um, about loving Jamile and thinking that she was the most beautiful person in the world to the point that he would talk about how ugly his mother was in comparison, uh, which is not something you would think a mother would want to tell a researcher. But, is you know, it was one of the, you know, things that were very prevalent in this kid's story was how beautiful Jamile was. So they had assumed that uh, Muhammad was him and Jamile was his wife. And uh, also, when the, when the child started walking, he commented on how good it felt to walk again, how it had been so long. And in his past life, he wasn't able to walk for a really long time. So he, you know, felt really good in this new body. And his parents kind of put that together, like, okay, well, obviously he was maybe injured or something. And then he started talking about seeing a man get run over by a truck and having his legs crushed and his trunk crushed and then immediately having to go to surgery and, you know, the whole drama that ensued from there. He remembered these things very vividly. The, the, the parents also assumed that this guy who got crushed by the truck must have been uh, this kid and that all that must be Muhammad. And, you know, they connected all these dots in, in such a way that they painted their own story that they tried to present to Ian Stevenson. Uh, like I started to say, the thing that makes this case so strong, though, is that a lot of those facts that they put together weren't correct. When they went to go research this, uh, you know, this kid had a very vivid memory of where he used to live, um, what his family looked like. He remembered names. He remembered places. He knew so much. He had a lot of information. And when they got there, they found a man who had been run over by a truck, but that guy was still alive. And they didn't know, uh, like, what to make of that. They're like, okay, well, we thought that he would be this guy, so now we kind of have to start over from square one. Um, you know, the kid and his father end up going back to their own village, and Ian Stevenson sticks around by himself for a while to research this case a little further. Um, he does a little more digging and talks to the son of that man who got run over by the truck. And he says, I had a cousin actually that died several years ago that was very close to my father. And when he got run over by that truck, my cousin was traumatized and had a really hard time with this. And that cousin got tuberculosis a few years later and was bedridden for over a year before he died. And he also finds out that this uh, cousin of this person he's speaking with had a mistress named Jamile and another uncle that he cared about very much named Mahmud. So the first two names that this little kid said when he was born now kind of fit into this picture better. And they're able to put together a little bit more about 
you know, who this person was. So now he's got a little bit more information to go on. Ian Stevenson puts together this idea that, okay, maybe it's the cousin. So he brings the kid back. They find out where the cousin's house was. And when they walk up to the house, it is immediately exactly what the kid had described in his detailing of the house that he had lived in. It is almost exactly it to a T. It is completely unchanged other than it has been boarded up since this person who lived there had died. And as they're examining the outside of it, three women approach. Um, One of them was the mother of the person who lived there. The other one was the sister. And the, the third was just a neighbor who happened to be friends with the family. And they all start talking to him. And immediately the kid was like, you're my sister. And (laughs) like talking to her and recognizing her. And she's like, well, if you're my brother, what's the last thing I said to you before you died? And he said, I told you to go get our brother who is away right now because I was about to die and I wanted to see him one last time. And that was exactly correct. And the mother was like, you know, uh, let's go into the house and look around. And they, they, they showed him the inside and they were like, okay, so where was your bed when this was your house. And he pointed to one corner and said it was originally over there, but after I got sick, we moved it over here by the window so that my friends could come and talk to me through the window without coming into the room because everybody was afraid of tuberculosis. Nobody wanted to catch it and die. And that was, again, exactly correct. So they just kept grilling him. They asked him more and more questions. And he had talked about previously possessions that he had owned. He told Ian Stevenson and his parents that he had owned a rifle, a double-barrel shotgun, a big truck, and a car, and all of these different things. And, you know, he said all that to the mother, and she just kept nodding her head over and over again. And when he got to the guns, she said, okay, well, where did you keep the guns? And, uh, you know... Guns, I should say, in the area that they were in, in Lebanon at the time, uh, the type of guns he was describing were very illegal. So uh, he pointed to the closet and he said, there's a false wall behind this closet in a compartment that I kept these guns in. And she was convinced by that specifically because since those guns were illegal, he didn't tell many people that he had them, first of all, and the people who knew still didn't know where they were. Only him and his mother were the two people that knew where those guns were kept, and this kid was able to point them out right away, immediately. Um, you know, there's so many cases like this in this uh, in these books. The, uh, the first book I'm talking about, obviously, is the Sylvia Cranston and Carrie Williams book, I read another book called Children Who Remember Previous Lives by Ian Stevenson, where he details more of these stories. There's a lot of amazing things that happen. Um, You know, it's all kind of along these same lines, though, of the things that I'm talking about. But I should warn you that um, these books, specifically Ian Stevenson's book, the other book I recommend to everybody, but the Ian Stevenson book, Children Who Remember Past Lives, It is written for skeptics. It is written for people who will meticulously try to pick apart everything that he says. It tries to examine every case that he brings up from every possible angle and refute any idea that somebody else might have of it and even admit in some cases where other possibilities might be. And the the funny thing about it is that in so many cases, the two options that he is left with at the end of it is you either have to believe that these kids are reincarnated and they remember the past lives of the person that they're describing, or you have to believe that these person, these people, these children are telepathically reading the minds of other people on the other side of the country, of the other side of the state, on the other side of the world sometimes, that... 
uh, and describing their lives perfectly. You know, like those are the only two options you're left with. So pick one, uh, <laughs> which I think is pretty hilarious. Um, the books themselves, though, are kind of dry. That one in specifically, the, all of the Ian Stevenson writing that I've read is pretty dry. It's pretty meticulously, scientifically recorded and calculated and all of this stuff. Um, he is, like I said, again, someone who was definitely aiming at skeptics and trying to be as deadpan and serious about everything as he could. Um, but the person who ended up succeeding him on his job, I should say Ian Stevenson was uh, very well respected in his field. So many people were uh, very blown away by the things that he did. In fact, early on when he started publishing things around 1957, uh, people were saying that he would be the next Sigmund Freud or the next Isaac Newton because what he was proposing and what he was researching had such deep, profound implications for everyone's lives that it, there's no way that he wouldn't change the face of our, our view of science and the world and everything there is involved in it. However, as years went on, uh, you know, materialism continued to kind of win out when it came to funding and when it came to publicity, people were very focused on the here and now and what helps me make money, what helps me, uh, you know, start new factories, what helps me produce more things. And, uh, his research was pretty well shunned by the end of his life. Uh, he continued researching, uh, into, I believe, the 2000s, the early 2000s. He died in 2007 in relative obscurity, except for to people who have done this research. And, uh, you know, over the past couple of years, I've been hearing his name a lot more, which excites me. And, uh, you know, I got to believe that wherever he's going to pop up next, if he does, uh, that he will hopefully remember something about it and be excited about it, too. <laughs> Um, so yeah, the next person I want to talk about is someone who ended up picking up where Ian Stevenson left off for the most part. Um, he was trained by Ian Stevenson, uh, and he is a child psychologist and medical physician named Jim Tucker. Uh, the book that I read by him was called Return to Life. And this is one that, you know, between the three books in this, the Sylvia Cranston and Carrie Williams book is wonderful. Uh, but the Return to Life book, I think, gave me the most profound changes out of all of uh, my thinking processes while I was reading it. It was the one that I, I would read a few sentences and then have to put it down and contemplate them and pick it back up again. It's, it's a really great read. It's really fun, too. Uh, he's a way more natural storyteller, I believe, than Ian Stevenson. And beyond that, um, you know, he's not so much just writing for skeptics as much as people who he knows are going to want to read about these things. So he's he, he gives you a little more with it. But uh, yeah, anyways, uh, Jim Tucker ended up seeing Ian Stevenson sometime after he had already gone to medical school and doing, you know, started his own practice and had become a child psychologist. Uh, and after hearing Ian Stevenson's presentations about things, he had, was so blown away of this body of work that this guy had done that he wanted to know more about it. He wanted to help out any way he could. So he volunteered at the University of Virginia to help out. And eventually, with his areas of expertise, Ian Stevenson knew that this guy's perfect to keep this research going. You know, the child psychology thing is actually really helpful because we're talking to mostly children here, and this guy will be able to tell immediately if the 
this person, if this child is delusional for some reason, if he's suffering in some way, if he's lashing out for attention, or if he's actually remembering something. Like, he's got a better angle on all these things. So Jim Tucker fit right in, started traveling with Ian Stevenson all over the place. Um, Some of the stories that you hear now in, like, TV shows, there's that surviving death show on um, Netflix that talks about this case. Um, On the very last episode, it's about children remembering past lives, and I believe two of Jim Tucker's cases are on that show. Um, A couple of his cases also got um, attached to a show called The Ghost Inside My Child, which is a really stupid way of saying what this is. Um, He actually talks about it in the book. He doesn't name the... the, uh, the show per se, but he says that he started working with a TV show and then he got the idea of the angle that they were going to take on these cases and trying to make them all spooky and crazy. And he was like, I don't want anything to do with this actually. So he backed out of that, but they still used a couple of his cases because he put the families that he was talking to and interviewing in touch with the producers of the show. So um, there's some really good cases on there. You just kind of have to ignore the uh, discovery channel haunted travel show uh, vibe that they're going for when they're talking about these very interesting and possibly completely benign things. Uh, but anyways, so the one story I'm going to talk about is actually in both of those shows. You can go look either of them up and and check them out if you want to. Um, but it's about a kid named James. So this kid had frequent night terrors when he was really young Uh, He would be screaming and freaking out, and his parents would come and wake him up and be like, what's wrong? What's the matter? And uh, he would say, you know, little man shot down, little man stuck, he can't get out. Uh, And he'd, you know, start freaking out, and his mom would say, who's the little man? And he'd say, it's me, it's James. So the parents really don't know what to make of any of this. They're kind of freaking out about, like, you know, the well-being of their child, but they really don't know if there's anything they can do about it. So they just keep trying to comfort him and sending him back to bed. Um, As this goes on, he starts drawing pictures, and he can't draw anything else, seemingly. It's always uh, the same pictures over and over again of planes getting shot down, and going into the water. It's a plane, you know, taking off from an aircraft carrier, getting shot down, landing in the water over and over again. Um, the, the planes that he's drawing doing the shooting are vaguely Japanese, and the planes that he's drawing crashing, or the one that he's drawing crashing, is vaguely American-looking, but uh, he doesn't, you know, he just keeps drawing the same thing over and over again. His parents are kind of concerned. They ask him to draw a nice picture, and he draws, you know, a picture of, like, a flower and, like, a couple of trees or something. And then in the background, there's a plane getting shot down and going into the water. So it's like he's obsessed with this. Uh, and, you know, after a while, he starts talking about planes that he liked to fly and planes that he didn't like to fly. And they're like, you're three fucking years old. What are you talking about? Uh, so eventually his dad takes him to an aeronautics museum and his dad's skeptical about all this stuff. He thinks it's all fake. He doesn't have any idea like where this kid's coming up with all this stuff, but he doesn't believe it's real, but he doesn't mind the interest in planes. He thinks that's cool. So he goes and takes him to an aeronautics museum and the kid's just walking around this place and pointing at different things and talking about having flown this one, having flown that one, why this one sucks, why that one's better, 
you know, the different problems that they would have with different things. He even points to one of the hatches and talks about a really weird, like primitive form of, uh, or early form, I should say, of napalm that they used at the end of World War II and how they made it and how they would set it up on the hatch to drop it. And he like just had all these crazy details that his father had no idea where they came from. And, you know, even the director at the museum was like, what? How did you come up with all this stuff? Like, you must be teaching this kid some crazy stuff. And the dad's like, I have no idea where this is coming from, actually. So, you know, after that, the dad's more curious and he starts doing some research. Um, I should say that in all the pictures that this kid's drawing, he's signing them James 3. And his mom asks him, what's what's James 3? What do you mean the 3 for? And uh, he says, I'm the third James. And she's like, what are you talking about the third James? And like, she can never get a straight answer out of him. So as they're doing their research, the kid has given them the names of, you know, uh, different people that were in his squad, the name of the ship that he was on, the type of planes that he was flying, the place that he went down just outside of Iwo Jima, uh, in Japan, he, he gives all of this information. He talks about having a sister. He talks about, you know, all kinds of different things from this past life. He has some very vivid memories. And so the dad starts doing the digging. And the, the digging that his dad does is very well documented. You know, he printed out everything that he was searching. So the dates and the places you know, that he was printing them from are all documented and everything. Um, and he finds the ship name. Uh, Manitoba, I believe it was Manitoba. And uh, he, you know, goes through the list of it and starts doing more research on it specifically. And, you know, he has to start going into chat rooms at this point and talking to people like old veterans and stuff. And he eventually discovers that nobody on that particular aircraft carrier died except for one person who was shot down right outside of Iwo Jima. And the person who died in that plane, his name was James. And he was a junior. So that would make this kid the third James. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then every other detail that this kid said lines up. Eventually, this kid goes to like a VFW reunion of the people that were on that ship. And he meets the, uh, the people that he was in the squad with in his past life, and they eventually are convinced by him. He meets the sister of the person whose life he's remembering, and she's convinced. Uh, really, there's so much to this. The kid was giving these people details that he would have no way of knowing. He was giving them you know, things about their personal relationships and things that weren't able to be looked up, that the only other people who would know them were people who knew these people personally, like he claimed to in his past life. So I don't know. This kid, this kid had a lot, of, uh, a lot of evidence backing up what he was saying. And eventually he grew up and kind of grew out of it. He was like, okay, this is great. I'm glad I put all these pieces together, but what do I do now? I know all of these people who are old and dying and several people who aren't alive anymore over the years that I've not been alive. So what else is there? And, you know, so the kid eventually grows out of it and, you know, starts working on cars and, you know, just becoming a normal teenager after a while. Uh, so, I don't know. That story's great. It's all over the place. Like I said, you can w watch it on TV. You can uh, read it in books, all kinds of things. But um, yeah, one of the things that you see about criticism of these kinds of cases specifically is that, you know, the parents are just coaxing these kids into saying different things 
or the, uh, you know, they just want fame. They just are trying to get famous. They're just trying to get on TV for these different things. And something that I would like to point out before I go any further with this is that that is not typically what happens in these cases. Often when somebody comes forward at these cases, especially in the West, um, in, in places in the Middle East and, you know, India, uh, it is more acceptable. But even still, when you come forward with the case of reincarnation over there, it's just, okay, we already believe that this happens, so what do you want? Like, it's cool that you're able to put this together and find these clues and this kid remembers, but, uh, you know, really you're not going to get anything from it. And, you know, like I was saying, on the, in the West, it is very much different. It is a... Uh, it is often associated with ridicule. These parents who come forward about the things that their kids say, are saying, uh, if they believe them in any way, if they give any credence to them, they'll get treated like they would have been treated in my early Christian communities. They're oftentimes excommunicated. They are looked down upon. They are told that they are satanic, that their child's possessed. They uh, you know, can be completely disowned by their families for these things. And some of these people in these books that I'm talking about uh, have had that happen to them. This isn't a fun thing for them. This isn't something that is cool. It's something that kind of freaks them out, that they don't know what to make of it, but they want answers. They want closure for their child so that they press on and try to find information about it. And a few people have been able to turn this into a story that people want to hear, and it's interesting, but the vast majority of them are like, please just figure this out, help my kid, and get out of my hair. And uh, I don't know. That's something that's fascinating about all of this to me. But beyond all of that, beyond all of the children who remember past lives stuff, the, the regular things, Jim Tucker in his book Return to Life goes into an area that is a little bit more interesting to me at this point because I've been reading about that kind of stuff for a while now. And the things that he was talking about at the end of the book tend to uh, make my brain explode a little more, make me make connections and things a lot more. So um, he starts us off by talking about a pretty normal case. Um, he goes to India and is investigating this case of a girl who has the memories of her grandmother and something that is done in certain villages and certain areas in India when a family member dies, if they have the intention to come back and be a part of that same family, what they'll do is they'll mark the body in a very specific way with ashes or whatever else they happen to have around. And um, when the person dies, they'll leave that mark on the body and they'll look for that mark to reappear on, you know, someone further down the line. And he was investigating a case of this exact thing happening. A uh, little girl was born with the memories of her grandmother. And when she was born, she had a very specific mark on her ankle that faded away very quickly, but they took pictures of it. Um, and it was the same mark that was left on her grandmother's leg when she died. And also, you know, the mother had an announcing dream where the mother, her mother came to her and said, hey, I'm going to come and stay with you for a while. And she said, no way. <laughs> and then the next night she had the same dream again. And she's like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to me? And then the third night she comes back again. She says, hey, I'm coming to stay with you for a while. And she says, okay, fine, fine. Come stay with me. Come come be my daughter, I guess, or whatever, whatever your plans are. And then, you know, the woman gets pregnant, has a daughter, all of this stuff ensues. The little girl's kind of a brat and wants to be the matriarch of the 
the house when she's three years old. And, you know, it's a really wild story. But at the end of it, somebody pulls Jim Tucker aside and is like, hey, if you're interested in these kinds of stories, um, there's actually some somewhere else that this has happened in our family. Uh, We had a very close family dog that we all love very much. And when it died, we marked the bottom of its paw. And a few years later, there was a little boy born in our family that had the markings that were on the paw of this dog. And Jim Tucker doesn't know what to make of this. He's like, okay, um, I'm down to talk about human to human reincarnation. But when it gets to animals, you're a little beyond my weirdness threshold. I don't really know what to make of it because it's a hard thing to research. You know, it's something that doesn't make a lot of sense to him. But he's also researching there with somebody else from India. And this guy from India is very interested in this. And he so he researches it a little bit more. And then he finds another case that he wants to go research. And Jim Tucker doesn't get involved in this case at all, but he feels the need to put it in the book. And I'm so glad that he did, because this story really started making my gears turn. So um, in this story, the other guy goes to uh, investigate this uh, little boy who was remembering a past life. But the way that it unfolded was really wild. So uh, the little boy and his father were at home. The boy's father was going to have a friend come over. And when the friend got there, the boy saw him and immediately freaked out. He'd never seen this guy before, uh, but he was furious. And he went and grabbed a hammer and started trying to hit the guy. And the father, like, grabbed him and wrestled the hammer away from him. And the kid's, like, two or three years old. So, you know, the communication isn't all the way there yet, but he's able to put some sentences together. And, uh, you know, he starts asking him, what's going on? Why are you attacking him? And the story that they piece together from talking to this kid is the kid starts telling him, I was a snake. I used to be a snake. And one day I was in my cave and I was trying to come out to find something to eat. And uh, when I reached the mouth of the cave, there were two dogs there. And these two dogs were barking at me and I got ready to fight them. But then their owner came over and just killed me. And... Then I watched the owner take my body back to his house and prepare it and cook it and feed it to all of his friends. And you were one of the friends that was there. And the guy that killed me is your friend right here. And he said, the reason I am here as your son now is because I watched you eat me and I thought that you were the kindest person at the table, the kindest and nicest person that I saw as a human being, and I wanted to be related to you. So I came and I followed you, and when your wife got pregnant, I became your son. That's the story that this kid tells, and it's really wild. And Jim Tucker doesn't know what to make of any of this because, first of all, all of that stuff happened. All of that stuff really did happen. The guy did go find a snake in a cave that was messing with his dogs. He killed it. He cooked it. He ate it. He gave some to this kid's dad, and then a few years later, this little kid's born. Um... Yeah, eventually the kid calms down and apologizes to the man and says, actually, I should thank you for killing me because being a snake really sucked. (laughs) He hated it. He said it was he said it was not a very fulfilling existence. And as that guy grew up, he would then go on to uh, kill snakes whenever he saw them out of mercy. He said that he was releasing them from their current incarnation and and praying for them as he was doing so to find a better body, find something better to be in, because I know this isn't, this isn't the best. You're going to find something better than this. Um, and then, you know, also this kid, uh, Jim Tucker 
stayed in contact, or Jim Tucker's friend, I said, sorry, uh, stayed in contact with this guy over the years. And as he grew up, he would go back to that cave where he remembered being a snake and being killed, and he would meditate there. And as he would meditate there, he would get these impressions of different herbs and plants that he could use as medicine. And, you know, he eventually becomes a doctor and he keeps going back and meditating in this cave that he had previously died in. And the more he meditates there, the more herbs, the more plants he learns about and he gets ideas for different treatments and he becomes one of the more prolific doctors in their entire village. Now, so Jim Tucker puts all of this in this book and straight up says, as I said earlier, this is beyond his threshold of weirdness. He doesn't know what to make of any of it. So... He kind of uses this, though, as a, as a segue into the talk of consciousness, which is really the big point I want to get to in this episode. Uh, really, what he talks about is how he doesn't know that a snake actually has the cognitive ability to understand, you know, where the cave's mouth is, what the uh, dogs were exactly, what the human was. Uh, what death was, all of these different ideas and concepts that this kid is talking about are not things that are commonly thought of as within a snake's cognitive ability. So he's really kind of left with the question of, okay, so where was this kid getting the information from? Was this kid's past incarnation just a consciousness that was kind of loosely attached to a snake? Or is there, you know, something more to this whole exchange than we think is possible right now. And um, I'll come back to this, but from there he starts diving into more of what consciousness is and how we perceive it. And uh, one of the first things he talks about are these experiments that were done. And one of them is a very common meme right now, so you probably know what it is, but I'll try to sum it up very quickly. So basically, uh, I believe these experiments or these type of experiments started in the early 1800s, but the point of them was to try to figure out whether or not, uh, or or what kind of, what kind of energy exactly light was, was it a particle or was it a wave? And, uh, they figured out through the first part of the experiment that it was a particle. So they were shooting what they now call photons through a single slit in a piece of paper and behind that was a piece of photo paper or film that would capture the imprint that the particles would leave as they went through the slit. So what they discovered as they're doing this is you shoot the photons through, no matter how fast or slow you do it, they go through the slit and they leave an imprint of the slit on the other side. Wonderful, it makes perfect sense. So then they put another slit in the paper and they start the experiment over. And what happens is when they shoot the um, particles through, they don't behave like particles anymore. Instead of making an outline of the two slits uh, or, you know, one photon going through one or the other slit, it basically makes a wave pattern and it looks like a wave interference pattern. So if you were to try to describe what was happening What you would have to say is that that photon, what was coming out initially as a particle, became a wave of two potentials. And those two potentials interfered with each other. And the mark that it left on the other side looked more akin to uh, if you took two rocks and threw them in a 
pond at the exact same time, and the ripples started interfering with each other. The waves started interfering and bouncing off of each other. That's the, that's the impression that it was making on the backside of the film. So they're intrigued by this. They don't know why it behaves differently for one slit than two. So they decide that they're going to put cameras there. They're going to try to observe with microscopes or whatever they can to make this make sense. How do we see... As you know, as time goes on, <laughs> when they have the technology to do this, they start researching it more. How does this how does this work? And what they find out is when you put cameras in front of the slits to watch where the particles go, they stop behaving like waves and start behaving like particles again. They make the exact outline of the two slits in particles without the wave interference pattern. So the observation is shown to change the behavior of the particle. It is either a particle or a wave depending on if you're looking at it or not, if you're intending it to be or not. So the observation changes it. And they've replicated this study uh, many, many times with different, like bigger particles than just photons. They've done it with electrons. And they've recently figured out the same thing about electrons. You're taught in school that electrons are these little particles that float around the nucleus of an atom. But what they've actually discovered is that electrons in that form don't exist unless you're measuring them. That outside of an atom is a cloud of negative energy, of potential negative energy. And when you go to measure it, when you go to see what's there, that wave of potential collapses into a particle that you can measure. It turns into one physical electron. So with those experiments, they've moved on and on to even like molecules. And the pattern stays the same. When you observe it, it behaves as a particle. When you don't observe it, it behaves as a wave of potential. So with this, and then they, they another experiment that he talks about in here is the um, red light, green light experiment, which is not the... Uh, Squid Game thing. It's actually a uh, random event generator. With the uh, random event generator, basically what they do is they create a program that uh, relies on chance, essentially, to create an outcome. And, uh, you know, it's basically a simulated coin flipper where, you know, nothing else comes into play other than just random event is chosen and the event in this case is whether a red light goes off or a green light goes off and if you let this thing run by itself with no interference nobody looking at it or you know people not intending anything while they're looking at it uh it will average out to about 50 50 it'll you know if you let it go 100 times it will average in the range of 50 50 sometimes it'll be 48 52 you know sometimes it'll be a little bit bigger but it normally averages out to about half and half, no matter what. Um, what they discovered is that if you put someone in the room and tell them, have an intention about this, you decide what you want to see. And they sit there and the person will decide, I want it to be red. Red, 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 I'm going to focus on it being red. And then as this machine will go with this person watching it, the machine will skew hard towards red, 70%, sometimes higher even, uh, more times that it'll be red than, than green. 
and the exact opposite if you want it to be green. You can change it either way. And just putting an intention on it and watching and focusing changes the outcome of the machine. You don't have to tell the person who's running the experiment. You know, it can be a double blind experiment where nobody knows what you're thinking, but it starts to bore out no matter what if you put the intention on it to go towards the intention that you want. So then beyond that, they, um, you know, started to do different experiments with the same premise. And what they would do is they would put a disc in and record the machine running by itself in a room with nobody else around. And what they discovered from that is with the record of what the machine did, if you take that and nobody else watches it, if nobody else sees what the results are, nobody checks the numbers, nobody sees anything about this machine that's been running by itself and recorded, and then you take that recording and show it to somebody else later, they can still affect the outcome of what's on that disc that you put in. If, you know, whether it's hours, days, weeks, months later, you can sit down and watch this recording, and if no one else has seen it, and you sit down and say, I want the results to be all green, it'll tend towards green. It'll move the needle way further towards green. And they don't know what to make of this. It's kind of a really wild thing. It's like, okay, now we're trying to figure out why consciousness changes our physical reality. That's what they're discovering with all of this. There's many more experiments. Jim Tucker goes into the different uh, physicists, the different mathematicians, the different philosophers that have studied all of these things. Um, it's really great the way he dives into it. But basically, the conclusion he comes to is there is a problem with our current understanding of uh, quantum physics and the way that we currently view reality. Because now, through all of these experiments, what they're discovering is that consciousness changes our physical reality. Consciousness is required for our physical reality to do anything, really. For it to make a decision, for it to turn into anything, for particles to exist, for solid matter to exist, it would seem that there needs to be consciousness observing it. But... With the current materialistic viewpoint that we have, consciousness is the last thing that develops on the planet, on any, on anywhere. It's the last thing that we have in the list of things that happen. Because it's first there's a big bang, and then you know particles and gases cool, and they condense, and they turn into planets, and things become habitable, and on and on and on. Billions of years later, you have a wet, warm brain that someday wakes up and sees. I'm alive, what is this, and, you know, has a consciousness. And that's the idea that we have currently of what it takes to make a consciousness. But with what they're discovering now, the problem with that is that none of that stuff, the Big Bang, the, the gases condensing and cooling, all of that, the evolution of all of these things, nothing would have changed without a consciousness to guide it. Without a consciousness saying something needs to happen, something has to happen, something measurable, something material needs to come into existence. So they're at an impasse here. And really, the only way to slip past this is to admit that consciousness can and more than likely does exist outside of the body, outside of the physical. 
It is something that is beyond physical. And that rather than it being the last thing that comes about through evolution, it is the very beginning of and driving force that causes evolution. So this was really big to me and really wild to think about. It got my gears turning, as I was saying earlier. Uh, I, I had to keep putting the book down and contemplating what I was reading over and over again. Because one of the big things that stands out about this is that if the brain is not what contains consciousness, if it's not the thing that creates consciousness, then its role drastically changes. And what I started to see and think about, and what I've also now read in several other books of several other scientists and different spiritual teachers and psychologists and psychiatrists and all these different people who are doing the same type of research, uh, what it appears to be is that the brain is not a creator of anything. It is actually a receiver. It is the thing that receives our consciousness. It is basically an antenna that is tuned to the specific consciousness of the being that is inhabiting this body. And, you know, just like if you're playing a PlayStation controller, you're outside of that body. The real me is contained outside of this entire thing. And I am experiencing right now this body because that's what I'm choosing to do. I am enveloped in the experience of this body. And what meditation is, what psychedelic uh, experiences, what all of these other wild things that we're talking about in the spiritual community are, are the experiences of being more than a body, being more of your consciousness, feeling more of it. And that's why I want to go back to the snake thing, because the idea that a snake can't comprehend what's happening in front of it isn't surprising to me. It doesn't, that, that doesn't, I don't have any problem believing that a snake really would just be reacting to shapes and heat and survival instincts and not really taking in all that information. But what that says to me is that potentially something was working this snake like a PlayStation controller and that something was getting a lot more information than the snake itself was. That consciousness that was using this snake to experience was recording more than the snake's brain was allowing. So that when the consciousness separated from that snake and went into a boy that had a little higher cognitive function and had a better, I mean, any way really, to articulate what it had experienced, this boy had so much more information than he probably did when he was a snake. Uh, and that just makes me think more and more about what is it that we are missing in our everyday lives living in these bodies? What else is happening beyond our perception of our brain, beyond the perception of these bodies? There is a consciousness that is using all of these bodies, all of these, you know, vessels to experience what it's like to be cut off from the outside. But when we leave them, what extra information are we going to get? And I'm going to use this to segue into the near-death experience conversation, which I'm not going to be having here. I'm going to do a whole separate episode on near-death experiences. But one of my favorite facets of them, and something I will talk about extensively in that episode, are the experiences that people have of reviewing their life, reviewing the life that they had just lived. And when people talk about reviewing these lives, what they talk about is 
seeing not only their point of view of what happened, but seeing, feeling, and being everything that they were affecting. When you do something to somebody and then you see it in your you know, life review during your death experience, you not only feel your emotions and the energy that you put into that situation, but you feel the energy that is being received by the other person and the emotions it makes them feel. You feel the energy that is being put off to even the bugs in the ground around you and the bugs in the air. Like, you know, the, I'm birds in the air. I'm just focused on bugs right now. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it is something that permeates everything and you feel it all. And that points to exactly the same thing that this is pointing to right now, that there is more happening than we are catching on to. Um, something else that even the, the uh, Sylvia Cranston book talks about is that at the time that it was written in 1984, I don't even know, I, I don't know if this has been figured out since then, but at the time there was a debate happening around what actually drives your cells to create themselves as they are. Like the DNA that is in every cell of your body is the DNA for your entire body, the whole thing. Every single cell in your body has the DNA for every single cell in your body. So how does it know to be uh, a bone cell or a lung cell or a liver or you know, a piece of cartilage? How does it know to be hair? How do we not have, you know, random hair cells sticking out of our liver and, you know, <laughs> heart cells in our stomach? How do they know to be what they are and to stay confined to the areas that they're in? How do they know to do that? And scientists, at least in 1984, like I said, when this book was published, there might be a whole body of science that is uh, built up around this in the subsequent 40 years since this book came out. Uh, that I'm open to. I'm, uh, I would love to learn about that stuff because that is interesting to me as well. But one of the ideas that was put forward at the time was called the electric body theory. And that was that there was some electric force that turned on the right pieces of your DNA, the right amino acids to create exactly the cell that you needed. And somehow that electric body was guided by a consciousness that knew what a body should look like, that knew what the intention of each piece of DNA was supposed to be. And that kind of leads right into the, co the topic I'm talking about already of consciousness driving existence, consciousness being the driving force. And it, you know, lends itself to the whole birthmark thing about these kids remembering past lives, too. If there's a consciousness that died in a previous body and had a fixation with a wound, with a stab mark, with something that happened to it that was very traumatic, and then that same consciousness starts to build a new body inside of a womb, then that consciousness might very well leave one of those marks on there to remind itself that this thing happened because they fixated on it so much. So you'll end up with people who have stab wounds that, you know, transfer into birthmarks of a kid that remembers the life of being stabbed and all of these other really crazy things that happen. And I don't know, it, it just ties all of this research together. And it makes me really excited. It's something that I think about all the time now. And uh, I don't know, I'm, I, I'm really excited to finally be having this conversation with myself on a microphone. So... Um, I'm going to go ahead and start wrapping this up here. Thank you so much for listening. 
Uh, I want to say that if you want to get in touch with me, you want to reach out, talk about books I should read, people I should interview, if you want to be interviewed yourself, or just have a conversation, I am open to all of that. You can get a hold of me on Instagram or Twitter at monolithseeker on both. And if you want to email me, it is monolithseekerpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening this far and for supporting this show. Uh, Yeah, let's keep this conversation going. And uh, you guys take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Until next time.